Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every Sunday is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that can lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. My guest this morning is Dr. Leslie Cooper. He is chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine in Florida. We will discuss myocarditis and the effect of COVID-19 on the heart, especially as it relates to athletes. So I know you're going to need to take some valuable information down this morning. So grab your pen, paper, or move that smartphone, get that app ready. And if you're preparing to have a nice Sunday breakfast, thanks for making us a part of your morning. We'll discuss heart and COVID-19 next on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond. I'm Larry Hardesty. Leslie Cooper Jr. is a general cardiologist and chair of the Mayo Clinic Enterprise Department of Cardiovascular Medicine, as well as the chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Florida. His clinical interest and research focuses on clinical and transitional studies of rare and undiagnosed cardiomyopathies, like myocarditis and inflammatory cardiac and vascular diseases. He has published over 130 original peer-reviewed papers, as well as contributing to and editing books on myocarditis. In addition, he has spent years working with clinicians and researchers around the world to further diagnose, treatment, and care for myocarditis and cardiomyopathies. In addition to his clinical and research work, Dr. Cooper is a fellow of the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, and the European Society of Cardiology Heart Failure Association. He's also a member of the International Society for Heart and Lung Transportation and the Society of Vascular Medicine and Biology. He is also the founder and former president of the Myocarditis Foundation and continues to serve on their board of directors. In other words, he knows what he's talking about. So join me in welcoming Dr. Leslie Cooper to New York Sports and Beyond. Let's say good morning to Dr. Leslie Cooper, Chair of Department of Cardiovascular Medicine down in Florida. Dr. Cooper, thanks for taking a couple of minutes out for us this morning on New York Sports and Beyond. Good morning, Larry. It's great to be with you this morning. Doctor, let's start at the beginning. What is myocarditis? Myocarditis simply means inflammation of the heart muscle. That can be present, uh, presenting in people as chest pain or shortness of breath. Sometimes it's actually asymptomatic. And the most common reason in the United States is actually a viral infection. All right. So how do we, how do we check it? How do we know what we have? And if we have it, what do we do about it? So in people who have no symptoms, we don't worry. In people who develop, particularly young people who develop a chest pain syndrome or shortness of breath with activity, it's one of the reasons why that could happen. There are, of course, many other reasons uh, pneumonia or, or even congenital heart diseases that are very important in relative to sports. But it is important if you do get those symptoms to seek uh, medical attention. Is this a disease, doctor, that can be helped preventive thinking? Could it be helped by diet? What are the, some of the things that you can do if there are that can pre, you know, preempt you from attracting and conducting this? Yeah. So there aren't specific diets or lifestyles that would avoid exposure to any potential virus in the heart, but we do, for all people, recommend a healthy lifestyle with uh, optimal uh, food intake and optimal weight, of course. Um, if you do end up with these symptoms of chest pain or shortness of breath at a medical evaluation, the diagnosis of myocarditis is usually suggested by either an electrocardiogram that can have characteristic changes 
or a blood test called a troponin that would be, in many cases, elevated. So, Doctor, now this is intriguing to me because is this a disease that's, should we say it's rare? Is it a disease that more people would have than we would think? And is it genetic-based? Sure. So, uh, first, the rate is 22 per 100,000 across the world. Uh, That's a figure that's been pretty stable for the past 25 years. Uh, We get that from the Global Burden of Disease Study uh, out of Seattle. um, However, the vast majority of people with myocarditis do very well, and the overall rate of death from myocarditis or its consequence, cardiomyopathy, is less than a quarter of that at about 5 per 100,000. It is not usually genetic, although there are some very, very rare gene defects which can include cardiac inflammation. Now, Dr. Cooper, in my conversations with members of your colleagues in different, uh, you know, sciences, I find that there are usually different types of a particular disease. So are there different types of myocarditis? Absolutely. Across the world, uh, as I mentioned, the most common reason is a viral infection. But if you go to northern South America or Central America, Chagas disease, is, which is caused by a T. cruzi, is actually the most, one of the more common reasons. In other parts of the world, there are um, nutritional defects like selenium deficiency that can lead to a cardiomyopathy, and there are toxins as well. So radiation-induced damage following cancer therapy for Hodgkin's lymphoma would be one cause for uh, more chronic cardiac inflammation. Doctor, are we noticing a rise in the amount of patients who suffer from this? And in your studies, what has been the change in this disease over the years? Right. So over the past 25 years, uh, the rate of myocarditis has been pretty stable, uh, a little bit higher in men than in women, but the death rate has been decreasing a bit. And that's because I think of better background heart failure therapies. The, and, and the number of cases diagnosed, particularly by MRI, has been going up. If, if you think 20 years ago, we really didn't use MRIs for cardiac diagnosis hmm. in this way. And now with the advent of these newer advanced imaging technologies, there is an increase, I believe, in diagnosis. Fascinating. So, Doctor, let me ask you, just to step back a little bit and tell me, what got you on this track of studying this? What was it about the the science of the heart that intrigued you to focus you in this direction? When I was a medical resident, um, this was about uh, 28 years ago, Uh, there was a young woman who passed away of a disease called giant cell myocarditis on my service. And that had a huge impact on me personally. That uh, led later uh, years to uh, writing a couple of research papers on myocarditis and giant cell myocarditis, which ultimately uh, one thing led to another. And and here we are uh, 28 years later and um, still working in that same field. Now, doctor, you mentioned giant cell myocarditis. What is that exactly? So giant cell myocarditis is uh, indeed rare. It represents about 1% of all myocarditis, but it is almost universally fatal. And so Mm. the importance of giant cell myocarditis is that if it does present, and there are ways clinically you can figure that out because of the presence of arrhythmias, ventricular arrhythmias, as well as heart block, in that setting, immunosuppressive therapy can be life-saving, and 
And indeed, we went from over a 90% oil cause mortality to a 90% overall survival now with the use of early diagnosis and immunosuppression for giant cell myocarditis. So, Doctor, what was it about this young lady's case that struck you so to do even more, to, more, to, to pique your curiosity about even more of how this disease affects the body and hopefully can be prevented? It was, in her case, it illustrated that young and otherwise healthy people can get a disease about which virtually nothing was known, although the disease had been described in 1905, and 85 years later, there was still no known cause and no known treatment, and nobody was working in that field uh, specifically. And so that's what really motivated me was the fact that you could have these uh, a disease in the 1990s that had no uh, known mechanistic cause and no known treatment, and nobody was working on it. That's that's really what motivated me was to help prevent this from causing a similar death in another young person. As you look back, doctor, why was that? Was it just because it was so rare? What was the reason why we weren't really focused on this? It was so rare. It was described perhaps in one or two cases per year. And at that frequency, the challenges of studying it were considerable. It required a multi-center collaboration across 36 medical centers in nine countries to gather our initial database to figure out that immunosuppression was going to be effective. And then we were able, to, uh, over the next 15 years, to prospectively validate that. But the signal that you could treat it um, was required a, a pretty large effort amongst many investigators in many countries. Dr. Leslie Cooper is my guest. He's chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine in Florida. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Doctor, when we talk about myocarditis, is there an age group that's focused? Do we know how it affects kids, teens, adults? I know you mentioned that it's slightly more prevalent in males than females, if I remember correctly, yes? That, that is correct. And the most common age is about age 40 or 42, but... It's, there's a very different uh, uh, incidence at different ages. So, for example, under age one, the neonatal period, it's pretty high uh, with the immature immune system. And then between age one and about age 12, the risk is very low. And then beginning at puberty, it rises, uh, and that's where the difference between males and females becomes apparent. It peaks in that 30 to 40-ish year old range, and then it gradually goes down later in life. All right, Dr. Central on ESPN, give me some numbers. When we, we need some stats, right? When yeah. we talk about the, the, the prenatal age, that's kind of scary, isn't it? What is it about that age group, uh, prenatal time, that, that causes the, the, the numbers to be a little higher? I think it's, it's exposure at a time when there's an immature immune system. So mm. uh, not having preformed antibodies and the inability to fight off effectively a, uh, an enteroviral or coxsackieviral infection at that age is what leads to the more fulminant presentation. And uh, it's, uh, at, that, at that age, it can be uh, clearly life-threatening. Um, as I said, once you get a fully mature immune system in young boys and girls, there's a very low rate um, right up to puberty. And then it rises pretty, pretty gradually, but 15, 20, 25, 30, it increases 
probably with increased exposures and contacts. Interesting. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond. We'll discuss myocarditis and how it relates to COVID-19 next on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's continue my conversation with Dr. Leslie Cooper, chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine in Florida. Now, one of the other reasons, doctor, that we brought you on this morning is we're noticing, and there's been a couple of cases when it relates to sports. There's a Georgia State quarterback that had was tested positive for COVID-19 virus, developed myocarditis. An NBA player had it, developed myocarditis. What's the relationship between COVID-19 and myocarditis? So COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, which causes the disease COVID-19, is a coronavirus. And we've known for 40 years, since, since 1980, that at least in isolated cases, that this type of virus, coronavirus, can affect the heart with myocarditis. But those cases were really, really rare compared to the more common viruses until uh, the original SARS about 11 years ago, where there was a, a fairly substantial rate of myocarditis. And so I think it really depends on the specific type of, of coronavirus. And then later with MERS, the Middle East uh, respiratory virus, there was also a, a higher rate of, of myocarditis. With the current uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, it's not particularly cardiotropic, meaning that it's, it's I don't think it, it is one of the more virulent uh, cardiac viruses, but some small fraction of people can get infected. Most of the damage in the heart is more indirect from a systemic inflammatory response, but it you can get in in some young people um, biopsy-proven myocarditis. Now, if your child or relative who's involved in in sports and you have this, what is what should they do? Should they get should they go through the regular quarantine stage and then get back on the field or can go back? Is it a little more extensive time off before they can get back to a competitive competition? What, what, what's your diagnosis there? That's a great question. And the first thing to acknowledge is a lack of, of data for this mm -hmm. virus. So mm -hmm. most of what the recommendations, which I'll quote, are based upon other experience before this okay. virus was known to, to cause human disease. So for people who have been exposed but have no symptoms, the current U.S. high school recommenda uh, sports uh group international recommend, national recommendation is two weeks or 14 days away from, from competitive sport. And uh, I don't think that means no exercise at all or mm -hmm. a completely sedentary life, but it does mean no competitive sports for two weeks. And that's uh, on the possibility that there's a subclinical infection going on still uh, that could be made worse by the presence of, of, of exercise. Then if you have symptoms, meaning cardiac symptoms, chest pain, shortness of breath, and the EKG or, or the uh, troponin is abnormal, then with a diagnosis of myocarditis, the recommendation is three to six months away from wow. competitive sports. Again, based upon um, both experimental studies uh, from many years ago with, with uh, enteroviruses, different virus, as well as uh, some epidemiologic study. So just in layman's terms, doctor, would the three to six months be for the opportunity to make sure that the, the, the scars, COV2 is out or other viruses are out of the body and your heart is responding to the treatment that you're giving it? Correct. So assuming that you're, you had normal heart function, and uh, we'll 
we're not talking about people who have persistent uh, heart mm-hmm. damage, but those people who are feeling healthy, who want to return, uh, feel able to return to competitive sport, that's the group where you want to make sure that the inflammation has not only gone below the threshold of clinical symptoms, but is actually gone in the heart muscle itself. There's a, a window of time after you have no symptoms where the inflammation can still be going on. Now, that is an area of controversy for this specific virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, because uh, a couple of studies now have shown that the MRI can be very abnormal in a, in a fraction of people after symptoms resolve. Uh, what we don't know uh, about this virus specifically is whether those abnormalities have a clinical consequence. Do they put you at higher risk of arrhythmias or a higher risk of heart failure if you go back to sports? Now, in the 14-day diagnosis that you gave, an example that you gave earlier, what has to take place following the 14 days? Are there any uh, further tests on your heart to see if it responds? or What, what uh, usually are, happens after the, to make sure that you can go back after 14 days? In the current recommendation, there isn't a physical examination or okay. um, to, to clear you if you're asymptomatic. Uh, the uh, I, I imagine the sport teams would probably want a negative uh, gene mm-hmm. test, but but that would be independent of cardiac issues. Mm-hmm. The um, for people who are who have had cardiac symptoms, then you should have the standard uh, echocardiogram and exercise uh, EKG to make sure there are no exercise-induced arrhythmias and that the heart function is has returned to normal. Now, Dr. Cooper, let's step out of the range of sports right now. Let's ask a generic question. If there is a person who is, and once again, just not asking you to diagnose a particular case because you can't do that, but just in theory, if there is a, an, an adult over 50 who has some issue with heart, maybe not you know, uh, what we're talking about as far as myocarditis, but they have some issues with their heart and they obtain, they, uh, they get the COVID-19 virus. Is there a situation that could affect their heart, generally speaking? So in older individuals who get SARS-CoV-2 there is, and who are in the hospital, uh, between 10 and, and 20-ish percent would have some form of cardiac involvement. And that does increase with age, and it increases with cardiac risk factors, including hypertension and diabetes. But if you're uh, a 50-year-old and you're asymptomatic, you just have exposure, get the virus, have no symptoms, I don't know that you have uh, the, the risk of any cardiac long-term involvement, okay. although it's never been measured, mm-hmm. um, is probably pretty low. Doctor, as you and your colleagues reach out and have these conversations and go through these different studies and work hours and hours, what, what is the, what, are there any uh, traits or consistencies that you see with the, the, the virus that, that is COVID-19 that we call and situations with the heart? And are there other things that can be done as we move forward to, you know, to kind of treat both so that we can, you know, help both sides? Sure. So, so uh, there have been trends. I think that we, we've seen the virus mutate a bit in different populations, hmm. and there may be somewhat more or less virulent viruses, depending on, on in part on mutations on the virus side. And then, just last week, the first papers were coming out about gene, uncommon, but 
important gene mutations in people where the uh, toll-like receptor 7 polymorphism was shown to increase in a small group of people the risk of severe SARS-CoV-2. So we're learning both uh, genetics uh, is contributing to the risk of severe disease, as well as the, um, again, the one thing that's easy to modify is exercise. And we know from uh, other studies, four, four studies at least, in uh, enteroviruses that exercise increases viral replication and, and pathogenicity. So it's worth, it's, so avoiding exercise when you have active virus is, is a good idea, almost certainly for this as well as the other previously described viruses. Dr. Cooper, what are some of the frustrations that you and your colleagues face when you're looking at a disease like this and you try different things and you're not getting the results that you would like and you, you keep moving forward and you keep moving forward? On the one side, I'm sure there's some, you know, there's frustration. And then on the other side, there's a, there's a challenge that you enjoy that, you, that is part of the reason why you get into medicine like this. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the biggest challenges is uh, risk of exposure. Mm-hmm. That you, you want to give the absolute best medical care, but you don't want to have too many people be exposed to the virus, either in the hospital setting or in incidental contacts outside of the hospital, you know, uh, not wearing face masks inside and things like that. So, so I think one of the great frustrations for me is uh, people who don't, who, who choose to not uh, wear appropriate protective equipment or a, a face mask or social distance. That's where I think inc- accidentally the virus can get spread in the community and ultimately into high-risk populations. Doctor, so let's stay on that for a second. When you hear, and you watch TV as much as the rest of us do, I'm sure, uh, and you see people who protest who say, this is against my God-given rights as an American to force me to wear a mask if I don't want to wear a mask and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, we're at a, we're at a, a situation here that is so important that numbers just don't lie. When you wear the mask, you cut down the opportunity and the chance for you to get this virus and getting this virus, doctor, as we've heard from various people who have it, who have gotten it, is it, it wrecks havoc with your body. And in this case, as we we're talking this morning, uh, there with some people, it causes myocarditis, which is a, a inflammation of your heart. This is very serious information that we're talking about, doctor. Right, and I'd certainly agree that when you're inside, social distancing, face wearing face masks and frequent hand washing is what you need to block the spread of virus. And when you do that, uh, you don't see any uh, a large uh, virus spread either in the clinic or the hospital or the community. But when you don't wear, when people don't wear consistently face masks inside, and they get exposed to people who have uh, active virus then it spreads, and it can spread to vulnerable populations. Dr. Leslie Cooper is my guest. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty, Dr. Cooper, chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine in Florida. And, Dr., he's also a member of, of the board of directors and former founder of the Myocarditis Foundation. Tell me how that got started. Well, thank you. Uh, the Myocarditis Foundation started 15 years ago. Uh, a survivor, Candace Moose, of a giant cell myocarditis 
and I founded this uh, to help people. The, the original goal is, was to have accurate educational material uh, that was up-to-date uh, for people because there was really no source for the lay public, as well as to provide a forum for people to communicate with each other about their experience. It has broadened a bit. We now support research grants. We've given out over 20 research grants and wow. uh, supported investigators uh, throughout this country and in Canada. It's been a, a terrific experience. What we do today is uh, we uh, are available for anybody or their families or any medical professional, for that matter, who has any questions about myocarditis. Uh, there's an 800 number. There's a, a website, and we are available to help you uh, and support you through uh, whatever illness uh, that might be affecting you or your family. In your conversations, Doctor, how important is that with not only patients but family members, support groups, uh, support, supportive family members who are there who need information, who need answers, who feel helpless, so at least they've got a group of people to come and speak with? I've found it is the most gratifying thing in my professional career to go and be able to help people who have, uh, who have questions, who are, who are uh, feeling terribly alone in many cases because they, they don't have a, a group of people they can communicate with. Everybody's social situation is different, of course, but, but for a, a lot of people, having a community of people who they can talk to who have had shared experience is a really valuable thing. And that uh, has helped, I know, innumerable people over the past 15 years. Uh, the website is www.myocarditisfoundation.org. And uh, I would just encourage any of your listeners who have had exposure or, or to people or friends or family with myocarditis to uh, take advantage of the resources. Absolutely. I was going through your website in preparation for our chat this morning, Doctor, and there's such valuable information there. I'm curious as to, uh, since you started the foundation and the idea of grants, how did that come about and uh, what are you finding with the grants? Are you getting closer to having a day when, Doctor, you and I can sit back and say, remember back in the oh, couple of years ago when we were having this conversation about myocarditis that we don't have anymore? <laughs> Absolutely. When we have, uh, there, uh, our, um, the people we've funded over the years have published a number of really important papers uh, advancing our knowledge of myocarditis, uh, diagnostic tests, and, and clinically relevant findings. Uh, one of our uh, early fellows, published a paper on exercise, actually, and the risk of having recurrent arrhythmias if you recover and demonstrating that at three months, at least in a pilot study, there, was, there were no recurrent arrhythmias when you let uh, people who had fully recovered at three months go back to sports uh, over the next three months. So there, that was the first time that anybody prospectively validated that number uh, before it had been based upon uh, expert opinion. Hmm, fascinating. Obviously, for the grants, you I would think, doctor, that you would like to have foundations to or, or make donations and, and people to make donations to help support the money that you're giving these grants. Am I correct? Absolutely. And we, uh, we are uh, very grateful for anyone who contributes. The, uh, the uh, foundation is, of course, a not-for-profit uh, with just uh, one or two employees, and we rely entirely on the generosity of people, uh, mostly through the Internet. And at a few, uh, up before COVID-19, 
we used to have events uh, around mm. the country, including New York. Uh, now uh, those are very rare because of the uh, restrictions, you know, on being inside. Sure. sure. So we we rely on the internet and and grateful grateful people. So, doctor, let's talk about that. What, how, with COVID nineteen, has that affected the amount of money now that you're going to be able to make towards grants to find a you know a cure for this disease and other diseases that are related to uh, myocarditis? We are really optimistic that it, even in a time of financial and uh, physical stress that our country is going through with this uh, pandemic, that people will uh, still find it in their hearts to support the, the foundation. We, um, I think, will still be able to give out uh, at least one grant a year. That's our plan, and we will uh, ideally more. But, but we won't give up on that objective for sure. Um, in addition, the, 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 not just the grants, but the foundation, the web-based Internet uh, information, the phone resources uh, that are available to everybody, uh, those, those are, we are deeply committed to, uh, having, having education and uh, the community uh, up and running uh, throughout whatever, whatever um, stresses the country has to go through. We want this to be available for people. And doctor, I would assume that you can make the donations at the same website you gave earlier. Correct. Yes, you can. Uh, www.myocarditisfoundation.org. And I just personally thank anybody who who felt um, moved to, to give to the foundation. Doctor, I'm curious, when we talk about myocarditis, how is it affect, when, when you, how does it compare to other populations around the world. When we look at the United States, we look at other populations around the world. Is it as frequent? Is it less so? And I'm sure it depends on different countries where we talk to, but generally speaking, how yeah. does it compare? Sure. It, well, there are different ways to measure both um, both death rates as well as morbidity mm-hmm. in terms of years of life lost or years of life disabled. And if you compare myocarditis and its consequence, one of its consequences, cardiomyopathy, to more common diseases, such as heart attacks. Uh, coronary artery disease uh, is uh, 10 times, uh, roughly 10 times larger. And stroke, which is, everybody's familiar, I think, with stroke, mm-hmm. is four times larger. So this is, is certainly a smaller, but uh, people might be familiar with abdominal aortic aneurysms. This is more common than abdominal aneurysms. So it's not uh, super rare. Uh, it's a, it's an area that I think um, is frequent enough that it's uh, important. At 22 per, if you think of New York, if it's 22 per hundred thousand, mm-hmm. that's uh, 220 per million, and there are so many million people in New York, that gives you a sense of the number of cases that you'd expect to see in the population there in the course of a year. Um, it's not, it's not, it's a meaningful number. When we return on this edition of New York Sports and Beyond, the genesis of the Myocarditis Foundation, that's next on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond. Let's conclude my conversation with Dr. Leslie Cooper, chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine in Florida. So, Dr. Leslie Cooper, for those who may have just joined us in the middle of our conversation this morning on New York Sports and Beyond, let's, let's kind of have a quick review. Um, myocarditis, what is it exactly? Myocarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle or myocardium, which is in this country often caused by a virus. 
and are there, what's the treatment for it? Myocarditis is treated based upon symptoms. Number one, if you have symptoms of heart failure, you get treated for heart failure. If you have symptoms of irregular heartbeats or arrhythmias, you get treated for those. In addition, there are specific forms of myocarditis, such as giant cell myocarditis, which respond to specific immunosuppressive therapy. Now, doctor, it was interesting, and uh, that's why you should join the show in the beginning. <laughs> but it was interesting because you talked about uh, giant cell uh, myocarditis, which got you into really focusing more on this path. And it, what I found it fascinating was, unfortunately, there was a person who, um, you know, passed away from, the, from, from giant cell myocarditis. But there was also another person who helped you start uh, the Myocarditis Foundation. I'm just curious, what was the difference between the two? Was, was the second person, was she diagnosed earlier because of the fact that you had more, there was more information because of your study about giant cell myocarditis? So, so uh, her name, uh, Candace Moose, she's written her story in a book called The Grateful Heart, which okay. is available on the website as well as through Amazon. And it is uh, an amazing story. I recommend it to all of, of your listeners. Uh, but the difference was that she was being treated in the context of a clinical trial that we were running at the time to prospectively validate the treatment uh, with immunosuppression. And mm -hmm. she was successfully treated. So it was a, um, uh, a good, uh, it was a question of timing, honestly. Mm -hmm. At that point, years later, after uh, we'd... Uh, published the multi-center registry demonstrating that immunosuppression prolonged survival, that uh, she was treated in that new context. Mm -hmm. How tough is it, doctor, to, to get patients to uh, be, get involved in these trials, which are so important because that's how we find solutions to, to various issues? It is always a great challenge. It is a great challenge for a number of reasons, but one of which is awareness. Uh, knowing that there is a trial available and being able to get to a site where you can be uh, receive appropriate therapy. That, in my opinion, I think is the first barrier, and www.clinicaltrials.gov is a, a great place to go for patients and their families to look for trials that might be available for any condition, any condition in the world at all they might have. Doctor, why don't we end with some do's and don'ts for my audience uh, of various age groups about things to do to make sure that you keep your heart healthy. What are just some simple do's and don'ts that we can do to keep from us <laughs> coming to see you? <laughs> sure. Well, well they're, they're, they're the things you can control and the things you can't. You can't control exactly. your age, your sex, or your family history. But you can control your uh, exercise level. Everyone we recommend to exercise at least 30 minutes five days a week. You can uh, keep an ideal body weight with a BMI of 25 or so. You can uh, eat the appropriate amounts of fruits and vegetables as part of that diet. Then if you had diabetes, treating it. If you have certain levels of high cholesterol, treating those. And finally, high blood pressure. If you're above the, the guideline uh, blood pressure range, uh, seeing your physician and considering, in addition to diet and lifestyle modification, possible medication. 
And Dr. Cooper, as a follow-up, how important is it to have constant communication with your physician to know what type of exercises you can do based on your age age range and some issues you may have, you know, physically with your body where you when you start an exercise regimen, right? And you got that, you know, that tennis elbow or that, that knee that's been bothering you for years and then you don't do it. And now your body kind of is, is you know, off kilter because you start a regimen and then you have to stop for a long period of time and you almost take two steps backwards before going one step forward. Absolutely. So there are a number of obstacles uh, that come with age uh, and and orthopedic limitations that we uh, shouldn't ignore but adapt to. So certainly speaking with your physician or your other healthcare provider who may be knowledgeable about ways to address those pains in the joints and elsewhere that would uh, limit your ability to do some forms of exercise is critical. There's uh, always a, almost always an alternative, perhaps pool-based exercise or, or other forms of, of less um, intense activity, which could be equally beneficial. And last thing, doctor, for some of our young people, because we know that studies have shown that we kind of have a video generation, not so much a generation of young people who get out and, and, and have physical, you know, physical activity. And now, of course, with COVID-19, that's even limited somewhat more. What do we need to do to make sure that we get our kids more involved? I think education and in, in attracting kids to groups of other kids who are enjoying sports and activities. Get out um, if you have the opportunity uh, play ball, get out and and bicycle together. Um, having a community of people outside who support who are enjoying themselves is very attractive, and hopefully would bring bring more and more young people out to uh, to be as healthy as they possibly can. Dr. Leslie Cooper, chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine in Florida. Thank you so much for. A, the work that you and your colleagues are doing to bring the awareness and to find a solution to these, to these troublesome issues that we have physically. Thank you for a couple of minutes this morning. Larry, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you, sir. That wraps up this edition of New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. We'll join you during the week on ESPN New York tonight and right back here next Sunday morning on New York Sports and Beyond. For my producer, the legendary all-world primetime Ray Santiago. I'm Larry Hardesty. The conversation continues next on 98.7 ESPN, New York.